Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer. Make sure we're in fellowship, ready to study the Word, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we live in a nation where our liberties to proclaim the truth of the gospel, our liberties of speech are still intact, and we still have opportunities to proclaim uh, that which uh, gives real hope, real meaning to life, that which provides eternal salvation. We're free to proclaim your word, which is the only source of truth. And it's only when we understand the details of creation within the framework of the revelation of the Creator that we are able to truly orient to reality. Now, Father, I pray that as we study today that we'll be encouraged, strengthened, as we see that there is a pattern of purpose to history and that even though things look dark at times today, uh, we worry about economic forecasts, we worry about uh, political situations, we worry about uh, the war on terrorism and the rise of Islamofascism and all of the many other things that could very easily threaten the stability and security of our of our nation. We recognize that our stability and security is in your hands. And even though things may look dark today, things will get terribly dark in the future. And they will get darker still for uh, Israel and for the Jews, especially during the period of the tribulation. And that uh, one day they will turn... And finally, trust in the one who came, the one who came to save them, delivered them, the one to be their king. And we look forward to that time when he returns and uh, establishes his kingdom as long, and fulfills all the promises that were given to Israel in the Old Testament. And we pray that you'd help us as we study through the new covenant this evening. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. The Texas Revolution in 1836 was a mirror of the American War for Independence that had occurred uh, just a couple of generations earlier. Some 60 years earlier had witnessed the birth of our nation and, and an assertion of liberty on this continent in a unique form of government, liberty that uh, was defined as freedom from government interference. And that liberty is the 
same kind of liberty that the uh, settlers in Texas wanted, although they were fighting, for many of them, not just for independence from Mexico initially, but as they flew the flag and uh, Tom Wright made available a replica of the 1824 Mexican flag that uh, hung over the Alamo that is in the, in the study in the conference room library in there. And if you haven't seen that, you ought to take a look at it. But they were fighting for liberty because what had happened, as I said the other night, is that uh, the Mexican government had become quite fearful of the uh, influx of illegal aliens. And as a result of that, they had tightened down controls and they were removing freedoms and they were increasing the presence of Mexican troops in Texas and they were uh, confiscating weapons. And all of this was going on. And there was, of course, a reaction from those very calm, genetically calm people known as the Scots-Irish. And they were, of course, ready to draw and quarter uh, anybody who represented the Mexican government. And William Bear Travis was just one of many who was uh, <clears throat> very much in favor of... of um, of independence and, and completely uh, th throwing off the uh, Mexican government. So he was dispatched by the uh, head of the Texas government at that time down to take, and he showed up in San Antonio with 30, with, uh, 30 men. And there was a little bit of a power struggle because Bowie was already in, at the Alamo with a group of volunteers, and then uh, David Crockett showed up as he uh, brought some Tennessee volunteers with him. And so you had uh, these, these three men who uh, allegedly could fight eat one another just to, uh, just to see who was in control. I always liked Crockett's parting speech to the, the Congress of the United States. When he failed to get reelected, as he left Congress, he addressed the United States Congress, and he, he just eloquently said, Y'all can go to hell. I'm going to Texas. <laughs> and he, he was quite a legend in his, in his own time, as was Bowie. Travis, uh, known as Buck Travis, was also uh, was a young man, and he really hadn't made his reputation uh, yet, but he was developing one in, in Texas when he uh, went to the Alamo. And they were taking a stand at the Alamo, as I pointed out on Tuesday night, because... Earlier in the fall of 1835, the, uh, the, the uh, Santa Ana had sent up his brother-in-law, uh, General Coase, to uh, uh, hold the fort, as it were, in Texas, in San Antonio, and he was uh, basically surrounded, and he was forced to surrender the Alamo to the Texans, and he had to uh, retreat to Mexico in disgrace. So that's how they came to hold San Antonio and came to hold the Alamo, which was a former uh, Franciscan mission. And it needed a lot of work to make, make it into a fortification. Some of the walls were crumbling, and some of the uh, walls weren't completely intact all the way around, so they were having to do a lot of work to fix it up. And they didn't really expect uh, Santa Ana to arrive until late March or early April, and suddenly they received word that he was crossing the Rio Grande, but they dismissed that, and then they uh, heard on February the 22nd that he was only uh, eight miles outside of San Antonio, and so they were scrambling to 
get as much as they could into the Alamo, as much food, much supplies, powder, uh, ammunition, all the things that they needed in order to uh, withstand the siege. And so on February the 23rd, I pointed out that uh, Santa Ana arrived, and he issued an order that there no quarter would be taken, and that they were not going to take prisoners. They were angry, and they had, he had issued that order to all of his commanding generals who were spreading out in uh, different directions in South Texas, and they were not to take not to take any prisoners. And so, beginning on the 23rd of February, the men were basically shut up in the Alamo. Now, we went through some of the events on the 23rd, 24th, and 25th the other day. I'm trying to sort of follow the calendar. We're up to the 28th, so I'll catch us up tonight. On February the 26th, the Mexicans began to move their troops around to the north side of the Alamo. And uh, the uh, men in the Alamo, the Texicans, began to dig more earthworks, began to, or were continuing to reinforce their uh, defenses, uh, General Sesma's cavalry, he was uh, one of uh, Santa Ana's generals, arrived that morning in all of their glory, and as they pulled in their artillery, they began to uh, organize them around the, the south, the southeast, and the uh, southwest side of the, of the Alamo and began to fire at the Texans who were uh, working to uh, strengthen their defenses, and so they had to watch out for that. But the Mexicans weren't that uh, accurate, and they couldn't get close enough. But the ammunition and powder inside the Alamo was so low that the men held their fire, and they were there was little that they could do. One man, John McGregor, was uh, had brought his bagpipes with him, like a good Scot Irishman does, and he was uh, he would play his bagpipes, and then. Uh, Davy Crockett would get his fiddle and he would fiddle and then the two of them would have a contest with each other to entertain the men and keep their uh, minds off of what was going on outside of the walls. And in between stints, Crockett, and we have records of this in some of the uh, uh, diaries of the Mexican soldiers, Crockett would go up and just stand in plain view on the, on the parapet up on the wall and he would uh, uh, take his flintlock rifle and uh, his Kentucky rifle, and he would look for a Mexican who would show himself. And see, initially they thought that they were outside of range at 200 yards, and they would be out working, and he would pick them off. And this was standard marksmanship for any frontiersman of that day because uh, most of the uh, settlers out on the frontier didn't have a lot of lead. They, didn't, they couldn't waste shot. They would have maybe one or two shots to go out and get dinner, and so it was either kill it or die, and so they learned to be excellent marksmen. And so uh, he would do that on a regular basis, and pretty soon the Mexicans learned that they had to uh, keep undercover most of the time because uh, their muskets could only fire 70 yards. So we, uh, we did a little better than, than, than they did in that department. They just had us outnumbered about 4,182. Well, the, on the 25th... A, Norther had come into Texas, and it was blowing cold. The wind was blustery and blowing 20 to 30 miles an hour, and, and uh, the skies were low and gray, and you know what that's like in Texas in February. And so it must have been pretty miserable for those men inside of the, inside of the Alamo. On the 27th of February, which was a Saturday, the Mexicans tried to uh, move in closer. The uh, men in the Alamo were getting water from an irrigation ditch that flowed uh, into the 
in, into the uh, mission, and the Mexicans tried to block it, so Travis ordered a squad to dig an interior well, which solved that problem. Um, on the night of the 26th, he had sent a letter to Fannin uh, one more time to request aid, but little did he know on the 27th that Fannin was already, had already tried and decided to go back. Fannin was down in Goliad with about 400 men, and he had attempted to leave with 320 men, but with a combination of things just discouraged him and his officers, so they turned back. The, the weather was bad, and they, every time they'd go about you know, a couple of hundred yards, another ox cart pulling artillery would, would, would break, the wheels would fall off, and they'd have to rebuild that. The roads were muddy, and so they held a, held a council and decided to that it was wiser to stay behind in Goliad. So there was really no aid uh, coming. By the 28th, the wind had died down, the weather was beginning to warm up a little bit, and the men just still stayed huddled as they watched more and more Mexicans come uh, to reinforce Santa Ana. On the 29th, the men were increasingly worn down. They were exhausted. Santa Ana was using psychological warfare. He was having his buglers get up and sound various, uh, various calls at all hours of the night, which would cause the uh, Texans to have to uh, get out of bed and run to the walls expecting some kind of attack or something would happen. The Mexicans were also uh, doing anything they could to create noise. They were firing artillery into uh, the Alamo all, all through the night to keep everybody, everybody awake. But, see, that not only kept the Texans awake, it kept the Mexicans awake as well. So uh, they were beginning to show... Uh, signs of stress from sleeplessness as well. And still there was no sign of help, no indication, no letters, nothing came. The men continued to uh, strengthen their earthworks, reinforce the walls that they had. And then on the uh, 29th, Santa Ana sent out a battalion of infantry. They could watch them late in the afternoon. They saw this battalion move out to circle around to the south. And they didn't know what, what was up or what they were trying to do. But Santa Ana had heard that Fannin was coming with reinforcement. Now, Fannin had already turned back, but he didn't know that. And so he was sending out this battalion to ambush Fannin on his way in from Goliad. So there were a number of Mexican soldiers out that night looking for reinforcements from Goliad. And there was a group coming. There was a group of 32 volunteers that had uh, gathered together in Goliad, and they were feeling their way in the dark, trying to get past the Mexican troops and into the Alamo. And as they approached, uh, somebody stepped on a branch and made some noise. It alerted the sentries in the Alamo. One of the sentries took a shot and hit one of the uh, Texas volunteers in the heel, and he uh, yelled out a typically American curse. And that alerted the men in the Alamo that those were Americans out there, not Mexicans. So they opened the gates and they made their way in. So that's how things ended at 3 a.m. on March the 1st. And we have March the 1st coming on Saturday, and then March the 2nd is Texas Independence Day, and that is Sunday. So we'll have to figure out some sort of appropriate way to recognize the independence of Texas on Sunday. Now, the reason I'm doing this is not just because it's good history, and every Texan ought to know this. And in Texas, I think every school child is still expected to learn Texas history. But we have to appreciate our freedoms, and we don't talk about this enough in this country anymore. 
what it costs to get our freedoms. And it's not talked about enough at the university level. It's not talked enough, uh, talked about enough uh, all the way through school, and people forget this. It's, it's not politically correct. But we have our freedom because men and women were willing to sacrifice their lives because they had a vision for a nation where people could live free without interference of the federal government. And what's happened since uh, Abraham Lincoln is that there has been an increasing uh, strength given to the federal government, increasing power given to the federal government. That's one of the things that was lost when the uh, South lost the war of northern aggression was that the that was, I firmly believe it was about states' rights. Slavery was just sort of the uh, uh, straw that broke the camel's back, but there were other issues that were involved as well, and that's, that's another history lesson for another time. But what came out of the Civil War, what came out of Lincoln's presidency, was a totally different vision of the federal government than what the Founding Fathers had. And I would, my opinion is that Lincoln was probably the worst president this country ever had because of what it did to freedom. And that will, uh, and that has increased from him through uh, <clears throat> Wilson, through Roosevelt, and on up into the present, the present time. And we just see a continued deterioration of that. And as believers, we have to recognize that this is the, this is the cycle of world history. We live in the devil's world, and we are never going to have the kind of true freedom for long that gives a foundation for the proclamation of the gospel and the proclamation of truth because the one thing that Satan wants to destroy is any platform for the proclamation of truth. And he has worked in numerous ways throughout history and in the last two or three hundred years to completely subvert all of the gains that were made in the 1500s and 1600s in terms of solid biblical theology. And we live in a world today when those who go by the name of conservative Christians are so abysmally illiterate about the Bible and about theology. And we live in a world today where the, the average person does not think that religion is something that you should fight and die for. And by religion, I mean that if you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins as a substitute and somebody believes that he was just a man, that, was, that, that he was not God, those were fighting words up until the 1600s. And with the Enlightenment, as we studied in our History of Doctrine class, with the Enlightenment, man becomes enlightened so that religious beliefs are no longer something worth fighting for. Political freedom is something worth fighting for. See, before, before 1600, uh, Western Europeans would not have thought that political, political values were something to fight for. Jesus Christ is something you fight for, but you don't fight for political values. So we see that things have just just really shifted uh, as a result of the Enlightenment. What happens fundamentally in the Enlightenment is that God is written out of the whole picture of how do we know truth. We, and it introduces this whole concept of, of that there's two, there's two books of truth. 
There's the book of the uh, of revelation or religion, and then there's the book of reason, and that you can arrive at truth uh, by either way. They're they're equal, and of course, what happens as soon as you get two books that are two authorities that are equal, one has to uh, one has to circumvent the other, one has to destroy the other, and so reason eats up revelation, and that's what's happened in the last 200 years. And so reason becomes the ultimate determinant. And by reason, I mean autonomous, independent reason becomes uh, the ultimate determiner of what is right. And when you follow that out to its logical conclusion, it ends up being everybody's individual reason. So your opinion is just as right as somebody else's opinion, and that's just as right as the Muslim's opinion or the Buddhist's opinion or the... Or, or, um, the Shintoists or the animists or the secular humanist's opinion. And nobody can really say that one is right or one is wrong because that's just going to offend somebody. And that's the worst thing we can do is to offend somebody or possibly be offensive by saying that there's only one truth. And this is where we are today. And uh, I didn't have, don't have it up here the, with me, but Scone gave me an article the other day from the New York Times and it's reporting on the fact that last month, three men, Walid Shubat and two of his uh, men he frequently speaks with, were invited to speak at the United States Air Force Academy on terrorism and on Islamic terrorism. And so they did. And, of course, these men were formerly terrorists. These men are now Christians. And that's just a terrible thing. According to this article, the they received a lot of opposition both from CARE, which is nothing more than a, a jihadist support group that's protected by our Constitution. That's the Center for Arab, um, what is it, Arab Islamic Relations. Uh, and they're, they're promoting all of their, their policies, so they're attacking. Then there's some groups within the military, and one of their spokesmen said that we have to do everything we can to stop this terrible incursion of evangelicalism in the military. How horrible to have men coming to a military academy and mentioning the name of Jesus Christ and spreading the gospel. This is just horrible. And if we're going to learn about terrorism, why in the world, I mean this is the, the gist of this article, if we're going to learn about, have our military men learn the truth about Islamic terrorism, why should they learn it from men who were formerly terrorists they need to learn from the real experts, which is the State Department. Yeah, the anti-Semitic, divorced from reality, liberal United States State Department. Like they have a clue what the real issues are. So this is where we've come in our country. And the more we suppress the truth and unrighteousness, the more we live in a fantasy world. And the more we're unable to truly identify who the enemy is, what the enemy is, and what the problems are. And see, that's nothing new in history. The same thing happened in Israel in the ancient world. It happened in the northern kingdom as they separated themselves from God and got involved in first idolatry, worshiping the golden calf that they identified as Yahweh who delivered them from Egypt following the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And then that escalated under Ahab and Jezebel to the worship of uh, Baal and the Asherah and the whole fertility religion and that eventually led to divine discipline and they were destroyed by the Assyrians in 722 
And then as during that period of time, as God is warning the nation of their coming judgment, both the north and the south, it's in that period that you have the rise of these great prophets like Isaiah and Micah. And then as things deteriorated in the south after the fall of the northern kingdom, and you have the... Uh, you have the eventual rise of the Neo-Babylonian or Chaldean Empire under Nabopolassar and his son Nebuchadnezzar. And Isaiah had warned back in the 700s that Babylon was going to come in and rise up and Babylon was going to come in and conquer Israel. This was going to be divine judgment. And so it was. they could see it. They could see the prophecy fulfilled and they turned their back on it. They were... They were so divorced from reality by this time because that's what, that's what carnality does. That's what sin does is it, it blocks your soul so that you can't see truth for what it is. And so by the time you get to Jeremiah and Ezekiel who are, who are, who are prophets at the time that Nebuchadnezzar has risen to power in the first invasion, he takes, uh, takes captives back in 605, the second invasion, in 597, the third invasion comes in 586 when Nebuchadnezzar destroys the temple, conquers Jerusalem. Uh, these are the operating prophets at that time. Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Daniel is, goes with the first captive and he's raised up in, in uh, Nebuchadnezzar. He is a writing, he writes prophecy, but he does not have the office of prophet. He has the gift of prophecy, but he doesn't have the office of prophet, which was part of the theocratic structure. The, the prophet, as we've studied in the past, was a man who challenged the king with God's truth and challenged the people with God's truth and was basically a prosecuting attorney bringing the claims of God in the Mosaic law to the people saying, because you have disobeyed the law, God said he would bring these judgments on you. But there is hope. And that is a, a message of hope with substance, not this kind of meaningless hope that is bannered about by politicians today where hope is nothing more than emotional enthusiasm. It was hope because the God of the universe, the faithful God of the covenant, said that there would be a time when... Uh, Israel would turn back to him and when they did and when they turned back to him with a whole heart that he would bring them back to the land and fulfill all of the promises that, uh, that God had made to them. The Abrahamic covenant, the land covenant, the Davidic covenant, the new covenant would all come to fulfillment at that same time. That's the backdrop for the prayer of Solomon that we're studying in 1 Kings 8. And it's the backdrop for God's giving the new covenant in Jeremiah chapter 31 because these, these covenants are given at a time when everything looks hopeless because God's discipline is truly coming on the nation and they are going to be destroyed as a national entity. They're going to, many of them are going to lose their homes. They're going to, some, many of them are going to lose their lives. They're going to lose their families. They're going to lose everything they've worked for. Uh, thousands upon thousands of them are going to be forcibly deported to a foreign country where they will die. They will never again see the land that God has given to, had given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, at least not in this life. And God never leaves us without a message of true hope. 
and the true hope was a confident expectation that there would be a future restoration to the land, and in that future restoration to the land, there would be a spiritual dimension that would bring a restoration of the spiritual life of the nation, a restoration of the heart of the nation as a collective whole, and that is the message of the new covenant. And we have been studying this the last few weeks in Jeremiah 31, 31, because this whole section, 30, uh, Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, is quoted in Hebrews 8. And to understand what is happening and, and why the writer of Hebrews is citing the new covenant passage of Jeremiah 31 there in relation to Christ's present high priestly ministry, we have to do an investigation through the Old Testament of this. You know, it's, it's a funny thing, the things that happen in the world and as, as things deteriorate. But there is a, there's a prevailing philosophy among, uh, among homileticians and, and seminaries and Greek departments and Hebrew departments that if you're going to preach a passage like Hebrews 8, then you can't leave Hebrews 8. Isn't that silly? Silliest thing I ever heard of. Because how in the world can you understand what's going on there? Because those to whom those to whom the writer of Hebrews was writing understood all this. That was their common frame of reference so that the writer of Hebrews didn't have to go back and spend the time on the Old Testament passages I am because these Levitical priests, former priests, now believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, were... Uh, uh, we're fully aware of all these Old Testament passages, unlike most of us today. We're not that familiar with them. So we have to go back and work our way through the Old Testament so that we can have the frame of reference to fully appreciate what is happening, what is being explained, and the doctrine that's developed in Hebrews 8, 9, and 10 because it, it's the background for the coming chapters and dealing with the whole issue of Christ's high priestly ministry and his present session uh, present session in he heaven. So we've gone through Jeremiah 31. We pointed out various facets related to this covenant. I'm going to skip through those and just summarize this very quickly so we can move on. Number one, in this passage, the new covenant is contrasted with the old covenant or the Mosaic covenant. That's really the point of the, uh, of the quotation in Hebrews, that the word new in Jeremiah 31.31 31 means that the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, was never intended to be permanent. But the new covenant will be everlasting. That's, that's the point we'll see. Uh, the second thing that's, that we see in this passage is it's a future covenant. It was not in effect at the time of Jeremiah and was seen as, as, seen as something that would come into effect in the future. Third, it was a covenant that was specifically said to be made with the house of Judah and the house of Israel. There is not a single... I know this is, this is something that some of you are still trying to work your way through here. Because you heard that there's a new covenant for the church and a new covenant for Israel. But you can't just make those, you can't jump to theological covenants to somehow make something make sense as a dispensationalist any more than you can as a covenant theologian. See, remember those two covenants in covenant theology? It's a covenant of grace and a covenant of works. Where do you find those in the Bible? You don't. They're, they're theological extrapolations in order to make a hermeneutical system work. Well, dispensationalism, at least at the interpretation level, rejects that methodology. Every time we have the, those involved with the new covenant 
mentioned. It's always the new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Egypt. Even Jesus Christ's present high priestly ministry. And this is what's so important. In, in Hebrews 8, 1 through 6, his present high priestly ministry is connected by that quotation there with the new covenant made with, not the church, the house of Israel and the house of Judah. So what we have to do is figure out how a covenant with Israel impacts that. And that's what we're going to get to because everything that's happened since Abraham is the outworking of God's call of Abraham. It is that call of Abraham that changes and defines history from 2000 B.C. to the time that God destroys the present heavens and the present earth. That is how radical the Abrahamic covenant is. And yet most Christians you talk to can't tell you anything about it. Most of you are now going to sleep saying, land seed blessing, land seed blessing. And about the fifth time you say it, you fall asleep at night. So you've got it down. But the blessing aspect occurred in the Old Testament. God commanded Abraham right there in Genesis 12. Go be a blessing is what it says. It's a command. And he, was, he would, as he was uh, <clears throat> uh, integral in providing blessing by association to those around him, so uh, the Jews provide blessing by association down through history on the light of, in light of a future covenant that hasn't been realized yet. It's, and so in some sense that's provisional. Can you think of anything else that was done early and the sacrifice didn't occur till some thousand years later? Everybody got saved in the Old Testament got saved in light of something that was going to happen in the future. So just because the New Covenant isn't, I mean, it, it, the, the basis is laid at the cross, but it's not established, it's not instigated until the second coming. But because that's what's coming in, in, the, in the mind of God that sees the, the end from the beginning, in the mind of God... That's as real to him, even though it hasn't come into our experience yet. It's as real to God uh, now as it will be in the future. And so on the basis of the reality of that future covenant instigated with Israel in the kingdom, he then in turn is blessing Gentiles and Jews today and bringing them into the body of Christ, which immediately relates them to who? Christ got two sides of the covenant. Christ, the house of Israel, and the house of Judah. So if you're in the body of Christ, which side of the, which party are you related to in the covenant? You're related to Christ. And we have a priesthood that is related and serves under his high priesthood. And his high priesthood is established by the new covenant. That's where the connection comes in. And so just because there's not a contract with the church doesn't minimize the church in any way. What it does is it shows how God's whole plan, it, it really just, everything dovetails together in light of that Abrahamic covenant. And we see that everything just, just falls out of the Abrahamic covenant all the way down through history until, it, until it's all fulfilled. So the third point was that it's made with the house of Judah, the house of Israel. The fourth point is, and this is where it gets hard for us to understand, because we come at this and we say, well, what about their volition? Well, in some sense, 
there's going to be a volitional override for the Jews, not the Gentiles, but for the Jews in the kingdom. Because every one of them, and, and I'm, that's one reason I want to go through all these passages. First time I taught this, that all the Jews are going to be saved in the millennial kingdom, I caught flack. How can you say that? What about their volition? I don't know. I can't answer that. All I know is what the text says again and again and again. Jeremiah says it. Joel says it. Uh, Ezekiel says it. Paul says it in Romans. I'm not going to argue with it. I can't explain how, well, how the dynamics are. But what God is showing is that ultimately man can't do anything unless God does it all, including giving him a totally new nature. And this is not regeneration, as I've said the last few weeks. And it's not regeneration. It, it, if you're going to use the term regeneration, you have to define it very carefully in terms of corporate regeneration. And we Americans just have a very difficult time understanding this concept of, of God dealing with a corporate body on the basis of corporate responses as opposed to dealing with individuals. Because we come out of this, um, this Western European post-enlightenment uh, pro-individual uh, culture, that it's all about the individual, it's not about the group. And what God is saying is that, no, there's a corporate reality also. In the first advent, there were thousands of Jews that accepted Jesus as the Messiah, but the leadership, the instituted leadership rejected him, and the majority rejected him. Even if 30% of the Jews at the time of the first advent had accepted Jesus as Messiah because the authorities rejected him and because the mass of the people, the other 70% rejected him, the nation went out under divine discipline. And there were believers at the first time God took them out under divine discipline. There were believers in in uh, the northern kingdom in 722. There were believers in the southern kingdom in, seven, in uh, 586 who suffered along with all of the stupid unbelievers. And the stupid unbelievers caused the suffering because of their apostasy and because of their rejection of God. And so believers often go through these times of horrible national disaster and we go through discipline by association. And there's a reason for that. It's so that we can give the answer to people who need the answer. We can give hope to people who are without hope so that we can help people understand that even though things look dark today, there's still a light that's coming and that Jesus Christ still controls history even when things are at, the, at their darkest because our citizenship isn't here. Our citizenship is in heaven and we are here as ambassadors and we have a different mission. And we need to remember that in the heat of all the political stuff that goes on this year is that as believers we, we, it, it, sometimes you, you almost feel like you've got a um, you, you've got a conflicted personality or multiple personalities going on because at one level and, and as a as a human being as a as a someone who's born in the United States of America I have responsibilities as a citizen I have responsibilities to use my Freedom and the privileges that have been won for me on the battlefield to be involved in the political process to whatever degree I can, to, to be involved in precinct meetings, to be involved in, in uh, electioneering, to uh, do whatever it is that, that we think that we can do 
uh, without it becoming a distraction to, to our own spiritual life. And that's one reason why next Tuesday night we're going to not have Bible class is because on Tuesday nights in Texas after the uh, primaries you have your precinct meetings. I want to encourage people to be involved in their precinct meetings. I think that we're an important time in this country and believers have a right to have their voice heard and that's how you act as salt and light in, in your country is you, you take part and vote the way that your uh, mind tells you to vote in light of the doctrine that's there. And that is part of our process. And so we are to be citizens to the glory of God. But we, ha- we can't forget that we also have a higher citizenship. And that higher citizenship has to do with a totally different mission that it sometimes comes into conflict with the mission of being a citizen of the United States. Now, that doesn't come into conflict a whole lot right now, and we're fortunate in that way. There were times in other nations and other countries where where Christians came into great conflict with the uh, authorities that were over them, and they had to stand always stand their ground for the truth of God's Word over against the wishes and wills of tyrannical uh, kings and uh, dictators and tyrants. But we need to recognize that that the only thing that's going to provide a solution to man's problems is Jesus Christ, not politics. The, the problem is a, is a heart problem. That's why God has to give Israel a new heart in the, in the millennial kingdom. Uh, our heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. Who can know? And that's really what, according to uh, Great Insights by Thomas Sowell in his book Conflict of Vision, that when you boil it all down, that's what makes the difference between a conservative and a liberal. A conservative looks at the world through the realistic eyes of recognizing that man is basically evil, basically bad, that he is fallen. It's a position that is consistent with biblical Christianity. Whereas liberalism looks at man as improvable, perfectible, society is perfectible. It leads to blind utopic visions of perfection And, of course, it's a totally false view of reality. And God is going to teach man through all these dispensations that it's only when we're living in complete dependence upon the Creator, letting the Creator totally overhaul the creature from the inside out. We're not to be like whitewashed sepulchers like the the, uh, uh, Pharisees, but we are to be changed from the inside out. And the only thing that does that is the Word of God plus the Spirit of God, period, nothing else. And that's the sufficiency of the grace of God and sufficiency of the Word of God and sufficiency of the Spirit of God. So God is going to give them a new covenant that's going to have a manifestation of the Holy Spirit that is even greater than the manifestation that we have in the church age today, it seems. And so it, it, we, we look forward to a different dispensation with different characteristics. Now, the problem I pointed out in the last few weeks is the problem is that a lot of... Uh, uh, theologians, well-respected theologians, men I've studied under, men I respect, uh, men I've, I've spent a lot of time uh, reading and studying because of their uh, their grasp of the Scripture and their understanding of the Scripture, but they've let this terminology slip in, a loose terminology, fuzzy terminology, that this speaks of the regeneration of Israel. And the problem that we have is that when we talk of regeneration, we nor- most people normally think of moving from spiritual death to spiritual life. And if I say that 
when it is when Israel calls upon Jesus Christ to come in and deliver them at the end of the tribulation period that that is when they are regenerated as a nation then the question that ought to come into your mind is well are these people saved or not at this point are they individually regenerate or not and as we say before they at the middle of the tribulation Jesus had warned them in Matthew 24 that when you see the abomination of desolation, drop what you're doing and and head to the wilderness, head to the hills, escape, because the judgments that are about to be poured out are horrendous. And there are many who will not drop what they're doing, and there are those that will. Those that will are responding to the message of Jesus. And that means that these Jews are already trusting in Jesus. And if you have your Bible, I want you to turn with me to Revelation. Jump ahead in our study of Revelation. It's interesting how at times that we study three different books, and at times they are, they're always going to intersect. You never, and I've had times when I've almost needed to teach the same Bible class three days in a row because all the studies came together on the same doctrine. You're sort of scratching your head trying to figure out, okay, how can I add a new little wrinkle or two on each night. But uh, Revelation chapter 12 talks about the uh, three uh, images here, the woman, the child, the dragon. Of course, the dragon here is Satan. Uh, There's debate over who the woman is, not among most dispensationalists, but the woman is Israel, and the child, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, in the first part of the chapter, we get an I- identification of these symbols. A great sign appeared in heaven, verse 1. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garment of twelve stars. Well, the last time you see that kind of imagery in the Bible, it's in Joseph's dream where he sees that his father is the sun, his mother is the moon, and his eleven brothers are the eleven stars bowing down to him. And so this tells us, see, the the imagery that's used in Revelation isn't just conjured up out of thin air. It is it, it, Revelation basically takes all these loose loose threads uh, uh, that you have from Genesis to Malachi and in even some in Matthew and some of the other Gospels, and starts t- bringing everything together. And so you have to understand all this other symbolism, everything else in the Bible, to put this together. So. We see that the woman is Israel. She's with child. She cries out in labor, gives birth. And then another sign appears in heaven, a fiery dragon and has seven heads and ten horns. These are the nations that he has empowered that pull together towards the end time. His tail draws a third of the stars in heaven and throws them to the earth. The dragon stands before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as it was born. He wants to destroy the male child who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron in verse 5. That's Psalm 2. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we're, we get the imagery, the picture of the heavenly warfare, Satan and, the, and his angels cast out of heaven. And, and that's described in verses 7 through 9. And then in verse 10, uh, John hears a loud voice saying, In heaven now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren accused them before God day and night has been cast down, and they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. 
And so this is a great praise. This is right before the end. This is just a, this section of, of, uh, res- of Revelation is an interlude setting things up for the final, final judgments. And then I want you to just skip down to verse 17, now that you know who the players are. And the dragon was enraged with the woman. Satan is enraged with Israel. Satan is going to do everything he can to destroy the Jews in the tribulation period. Satan was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring. Incidentally, the woman isn't the church. See, that's what replacement theologians say. The woman's the church, and so they try to make this a church, and that's just absurd. Uh, The dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God. Now, are those, re, are those regenerate or apostate Jews who are keeping the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ? They're believers. These are rege, tribulation regenerate believers, born-again believers in the tribulation. Have they fled to Basra yet? No. No. Have they, have they come together as a corporate entity to call upon Jesus Christ to return as their Messiah and deliver them? No. That's, that's mentioned in Joel 2 and, and in uh, Romans 10, and we'll get, get there as we study this. But this is a key passage because what this passage tells us is they are already trusting in the testimony of God, the testimony of Jesus Christ. They are believers before they flee, before the instigation, the establishment of the new covenant and the regeneration of the nation. Now, I think we can use that term if we carefully define it in the same way we talk about the apostasy of the nation in the, at the time of Christ. When we talk about the fact that the nation rejected Jesus, we don't mean every individual in the nation rejected Jesus. Maybe only 70% or 80% rejected Jesus. The, the disciples didn't reject Jesus. The 5,000 saved on the day of The day of Pentecost didn't reject Jesus. The 4,000 men that were saved a couple of days later didn't reject Jesus. All of the Old Testament believers that trusted in Jesus, like the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4 and the uh, man born blind from birth in John chapter 9, they were all regenerate believers. Nicodemus, uh, Joseph of Arimathea, they were all regenerate, born-again believers. Before the, uh, before the advent of the church age. So, just because you speak corporately in terms of the, the, the general position of the nation, uh, you can say that, that because they are all regenerate, they then corporately call upon Jesus, and in that there is going to be a corporate confession of sin. Just like when Daniel confessed sin of the nation. Now, there may have been tens of thousands of individual Jews who had confessed their sin of idolatry after Nebuchadnezzar showed up in 586, but it was too late. But it's the, the nation doesn't corporately confess their sin until Daniel does it in Daniel chapter 9. And when he asked God to forgive the nation at that point, that is because he understands Leviticus 26 and 27 and Deuteronomy 29 and 30 that it is when the nation turns back to God that God will then forgive them and restore them to the land. And that was what Daniel was praying in Daniel chapter 9 
when he had the vision of Daniel's uh, 70 weeks and the, that final 490-year timetable uh, for the nation Israel. So that's what we're, we're talking about here is this corporate, uh, corporate aspect. So once Jesus returns to a regenerate people individually who are saved individually, and the nation then become, has something new happen to them as a corporate nation. Now, this is described in Jeremiah 32, 36, uh, down through uh, 40. We read, uh, Now, therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning this city, Jerusalem, of which you say it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Behold, I will gather them out of all the lands to which I have driven them. That's the hope. Verse 36 is the judgment. Verse 37 is the gracious promise of future restoration to the land. God says, Behold, I will gather them out of all the lands to which I have driven them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation. Anger, wrath, and indignation are all terms expressing the severity of God's justice and God's judgment for their sin. And I will bring them back. That's the promise. I will bring them back to this place and make them dwell in safety. That hasn't ever happened. The Jews have never come back to the land and dwelt in safety. This is a second coming prophecy, not a uh, 537 prophecy. They shall be my people and I will be their God. That terminology is heavily in, heavy in New Covenant passages. Uh, verse 39, I will give them one heart and one way. See, that's, that's this internal transformation. The land covenant focused on the land. The Davidic covenant focused on the fact that if you're going to have any kind of nation that is going to glorify God, then it, it can't be led by just some man because sinful men do sinful things. You've got to have a, you've got to have a king whose heart is changed. And so that the Davidic covenant solves the problem of leadership and the new covenant solves the problem with the people. That was the whole issue in, in Judges. Judges isn't about how wonderful uh, Othniel and Deborah and Gideon and Jephthah and uh, Samson are because they're not. They get increasingly worse to show that, the, that sinful men can't provide perfect leadership. As long as we live in a fallen world, you can't put your hopes and dreams in politics and in leaders. And then you get into the, the appendices in Judges, and that shows that the priesthood gets corrupted and the people are corrupted. And you've got to change the heart of the leaders and the heart of the religious leaders and the heart of the people, or you're, just, you're never going to have the problem solved. And until that happens, we're always going to be uh, living out the consequences of our sinful natures. And so God says, I will give them one heart in one way that they may fear me always for their own good and for the good of their children. After them, I will make an everlasting covenant. That's the new covenant, an everlasting covenant, because the Mosaic covenant was a temporary covenant. I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. They're not going to have the option. They will not turn away from him again. Now, that may come from their own volition, but somehow God is saying there's going to be an inner transformation here and they're not going to turn away from me. It's a different dispensation, a different dynamic, and different 
God's teaching different things. And verse uh, 41, uh, God says, I will rejoice over them to do them good and will faithfully plant them in this land with all my heart and all my soul. See, the fulfillment of the new covenant is connected to the fulfillment of the land covenant. Now, as we close in the last 30 seconds, before we go, before next time I'll start with Jeremiah 50, I want to go back to, Je- to Deuteronomy chapter 30. Deuteronomy 29 is where we normally go for the land covenant. Jeremiah, I mean, Deuteronomy 29 and 30 deals with the, the, the land covenant. De- uh, Deuteronomy um, 29.1, God says, uh, I mean, Moses right. These are the words of the covenant which the Lord commanded Moses to make with the children of Israel in the land of Moab, not Sinai. Besides the covenant, I mean, in addition to the covenant which he made with them in Horeb, that's Sinai. So it's, an, it's not, this is not the Sinaitic covenant. And then in verse, uh, in chapter 30, verses 1 and following, we read, Now it shall come to pass, when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, when you've been scattered to all the nations in the world, which I have said before, you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God drives you, and you return to the Lord your God and obey His voice according to all that I command you today, you and your children with all your heart and with all your soul. What did we just read? I will faithfully plant them in this land with all my heart and with all my soul, God says. That the, verse 3, that the Lord your God will bring you back from captivity and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. And where is he bringing him? Back to the land. Verse 4, if any of you are driven out to the farthest parts under heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will bring you. Then the Lord your God will bring you to the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. He shall prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. That is the first indication of the new covenant. And it's but it's embedded within the land covenant. The issue in 29 and 30 is the land, and there's a hint that there's going to be a spiritual change. When you get into passages like Jeremiah 32, the issue is the internal spiritual change, and then at the end, it connects it to the land. So it pulls these things together. So we'll come back next time and pick up in Jeremiah uh, chapter uh, 50 and make our way through Jeremiah and then the cleansing passages in Ezekiel. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things tonight, to be reminded that you control history and that it is you that are working out your plans and purposes. And our responsibility is to do all that we do to your honor and glory, to the very best of our ability under the dictates of Scripture, uh, following the leadership of the Holy Spirit, walking by the Spirit in such a way that you are honored and glorified in our own roles as citizens of this nation and as our ultimate role as citizens of heaven. We pray that you challenge us with what we study tonight. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.